Today's reading from Matthew comes after a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ from Abraham to Mary. So it's Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 23. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Christmas is coming, uh, and I'm guessing your sense of expectation is growing. Uh, we put up our tree and our lights yesterday, uh, and it was the first time we had a grandchild um, partake in that experience, and uh, that was kind of special. Well, the second time, but the first time that she was conscious that that's what we were doing. Um, and uh, I just got a kind of a cue there from my wife, no, you got that wrong. I won't look at you again for the rest of the sermon in case I get some other stuff wrong. Um, uh, we do, we have this sense of expectation, and uh, last week we looked at uh, some of the expectations of the Jews coming into Christmas. Um, today, today's question is, what do you expect to be saved from? As you think about Christmas and this key text that we've just read, right? Joseph um, is betrothed to Mary uh, and it turns out um, she's, she's pregnant out of wedlock and he's thinking of divorcing her and an angel comes and says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, uh, which of course means saviour, because he will save his people from their sins. When you hear that phrase, and it's a phrase you would have heard time and time again in church, what is it that you sense that you need saving from? We saw last week that the Jews had a mixed set of expectations. The Pharisees thought that uh, Israel needed saving from ungodliness and we have to try and get our house in order before the Saviour will return. The Sadducees and the chief priests thought we don't need saving from much, to be quite honest. We're doing pretty well here um, and we've got some kind of a good deal going with the Romans um, and we've got a beautiful new, t new temple out of it. So we're fine, thank you very much. The Zealots, uh, they wanted some kind of a, a political uprising. They wanted to be saved from the Romans. And I think your average person felt some affinity with where the zealots were coming from. Because many people, 90% of the people, lived on the poverty line or below. 25% uh, roughly of people were in slavery. 
in the first century, right? And so their sentiment would be something like this. Here's a, a, a verse from um, a piece of writing in the first century. See, O Lord, and raise up for them, the Jewish people, their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God, undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, the Romans, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her with destruction, in wisdom and in righteousness, to drive out the sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. Fighting words, aren't they? You can hear the generations of oppression, the resentment, the bitterness of your average Jew. And they're harking back to the good old days when David was the king and there were promises made to David that a son would sit on his throne and they're hoping that God would come and vindicate God's people and would once again place a king on David's throne and Jerusalem would be at the centre of the universe like it once was. Well, as we think about Christmas, we're not hoping that Jesus will come and overthrow the political party that we don't happen to like or some sort of oppressive foreign world power that we're worried about. On the contrary, we know better. We think to ourselves, well, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, because that's what Jesus said. Uh, and, and we know that Jesus come to save us from our sins and not from the Romans or whoever your picture of an enemy or an oppressive force might be. And, and we think about this verse, we go to this verse, Jesus comes to save us from our sins. And I want to say amen to that. That's all true. I grew up in Christian Protestant evangelical churches and, and when I was, say, in my early 20s, if, if I'd been asked the question, what is it you think you need saving from? I would have said, from my sins. And I would have said something like this, sin is the obstacle between me and God. Sins are things that I do that, that are wrong. They're transgressions where I break the law. God is a holy God. He is righteous uh, and he is the judge and he can have nothing to do with evil. And because I've um, been tainted by some of my poor choices, because I have, to use phrases from the prayer book, because I have done what I ought not to have done and not done the things I ought to have done, as you say your prayers in your most honest, reflective moments, you know that to be true, don't you? I do. I think, man, how did I do that again? How, how, how did I fall short of that particular temptation? Or why didn't I do that? And, and I would sense in those moments that I'm under judgment and that's not just from God's perspective. I feel this. I, I'm in touch with my guilt. I'm aware of my unworthiness to be called a child of God. And yet, this is why Jesus comes. 
Jesus comes and he takes the penalty that is rightly mine. He lives the life that I'm supposed to live. He's holy. He's perfect. And then he uh, dies an atoning death uh, and substitutionary death that means that he dies in my place and I receive his life. I'm clothed with his cloak of righteousness and it's possible for me to experience a restored relationship with God. All of that is true. All of that is why Jesus came to save me and to save us from our sins. Graham Goldsworthy, who was uh, my uh, lecturer at college, and many of you will have read some of his books and perhaps heard some of his talks. Um, from here, he wants to distinguish between the gospel and the consequences of the gospel. And he says the gospel is what Christ has done. The fact that uh, Jesus lived the perfect life, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus atoned for your and for my sins, Jesus makes it possible for us to be forgiven and restored to God. That is the gospel. And we ought to not confuse the gospel with the consequences of the gospel, as important as they are. Uh, and some consequences might be the fact that you and I can know and feel that we have assurance. The fact that God's Spirit is at work in us and it's our responsibility to keep in step with the Spirit and to grow in godliness. We might call that process sanctification. Um, the fact that we're called to, um, to good works, to support and care for people in our community. The fact that we're uh, part of the body of Christ and we have Christian fellowship. Goldsworthy wants to say those things are all important but they are all almost secondary, if you like, to the core of the gospel, the fact that Jesus died and rose for us. Well, I want to push back on that a little bit this morning. As we kind of encounter this passage, here's what I was taught when I was young about the virgin birth, right? Uh, for Jesus to be holy and without sin, he couldn't be a son of Joseph because then he would somehow inherit original sin. And so um, he's conceived by um, the Holy Spirit so that that hereditary sin does not somehow come into or come upon him. I don't want to say, amen, that is all true. But I sense there's more going on in this morning's passage than just some neat explanation about how it is that Jesus doesn't inherit original sin. So let's just dive back into today's passage. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. I want you to think about this for a moment from Joseph's perspective. You're engaged, you're betrothed, you come from a culture where you believe premarital intercourse is inappropriate, 
you're saving yourself for your wedding night, for your husband, for your wife, and you believe that your partner ought to be doing the same. And then you discover that your betrothed is pregnant and it's not to you. What do you make of that? How would you feel about that? How would you feel towards your fiancé? Would your view be that, oh, they've just kind of made a mistake? Or they've just broken a rule and I can just forgive them? No, you wouldn't. Somehow this runs deeper than just somebody failed to do the right thing or somebody did the wrong thing. You see, what we're getting in touch with here is that sin, yes, at times we can understand sin as a breaking of a law, but there are other ways the Scriptures talk about sin. And here we get this sense that sin is defilement. Sin is a lack of purity. And so Joseph now anticipates that Mary has been defiled, that she has given herself to another, that she has laid with another lover and she is no longer pure like she once was. You get this sense for much of the Old Testament that the great sin is idolatry. And idolatry is not, oh, I've got some little wooden thing in the corner of my lounge room and every now and then I say my prayers in front of it. Idolatry is far worse and deeper than that. Idolatry is about saying, we believe that these gods can save us. They can protect us. They can provide for us. They can bring meaning and hope and purpose and we want to live for and pursue these gods. We trust them to be our deliverer. And we get this most clearly in the book of Hosea, where Israel is portrayed as a prostitute who pants and chases after the gods of the nation and gives herself... weds herself to these other gods and she's defiled. That's what sin does. It defiles our very being. It makes us unclean. We are no longer pure. And Paul talks about this in the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians, for instance, he talks about the fact that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It ought to be this clean, pure place where God's Spirit indwells you. You can't take that kind of a pure, clean place and defile it by sleeping with a prostitute. You can't live for God and give yourself to lust, believing somehow that the pursuit of pleasure will bring happiness and meaning to your life. Those two can't go together. There's a defilement that happens when you give yourself and entrust yourself to another 
who is not God. And as we are in this space, I'm hoping you're appreciating the fact that when Jesus comes and says after some of his miracles, not just, I forgive you, but he declares people clean, there's an undoing of this sense of defilement. There's a a, a return to a purity. Well, I think there's more. So let's now just imagine this from Joseph's family's perspective. Not just what sin does Joseph think might have happened and what would be the consequences of that sin, but now let's think about Joseph's family's perspective. They're going to be less concerned about the fact that uh, they have been betrayed as a husband, but now they're thinking about shame. Mary's sin is that she will bring shame to their son and through their son to the extended family. Now, we don't think in these categories anymore, right? Premarital sex is kind of standard and normal and you're weird if you don't. But a few generations ago, it was different. Uh, My grandmother on my father's side um, wanted to marry a guy. And her parents said, no, you can't marry him. He's not good enough. And so she slept with him and they conceived out of wedlock. And she got to marry him. (laughs) But man, that was a scandal. My grandmother had a certain reputation because of that choice of action. And Jesus' culture would have been that and more. Let me try and explain it this way. Um, Shame is not just I broke a rule and somehow I'm feeling guilty about that. Shame is how those consequences impact others. We've got the cricketing scandal playing out once again, haven't we? Where Warner is um, asking to have his ban lifted and then he's withdrawing that and now he's talking about, you know, whatever else happened in the dressing room. Um, We don't view what Warner did as, well, he broke a rule of cricket. No, what he did was something that was, it was more than just wrong, Somehow, it, it, it lacked virtue, it lacked honour. Uh, cricket is, is a, a sport where we think, you know, well, that's just not cricket. Or you've got to play with a straight bat. And so out of the sense of cricket, there's a sense of um, that there's a right way to do things. And when you don't, when you break the rules, it's not just a, a, a legal problem, it's actually, it, it brings the entire game into disrepute and you let your whole team down. And we felt that with Warner at the time, didn't we? He was an embarrassment to all of Australian cricket and perhaps to all Australians who loved cricket. And we wanted to disown him and we were happy for him to be out in the dog box. That's what's going on in the context of this statement, Jesus comes to save the people from their sins. Joseph's family will be thinking that sin is 
shame. Sin is an action that has negative consequences for the extended family and it brings down a break in relationship where we want to have nothing to do with that person. And Jesus coming to save the people from their sins is about more than just dealing with breaking a law. It's actually restoring a person into the family. And so we read that even though the nation Israel is like that prostitute giving themselves to other gods, Jesus overlooks that shame and he he gives up his seat at the right hand of God the Father and he comes down to be God with us. That, that, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, we're not an unashamed culture, but we are more and more becoming one. And you see this particularly in social media. You say the wrong thing and people dislike you and then they'll cut you off and, and we now have this thing called cancel culture. And it's there in scripture, right? That's what the, the father of the prodigal son is supposed to do. I don't have a son who tells me, Dad, the equivalent of drop dead, give me my share of the inheritance, who then goes and spends his money on Gentiles and wild living, who then takes a job feeding pigs and anathema for a Jew, and then wants to somehow come back home. The Jewish answer is, I don't have a son like that. I've disowned him. He's as good as dead to me. But God embarrasses himself and welcomes back the son, and Jesus is doing precisely that. He's giving up his seat at the right hand of God and he's coming and being with his shame-filled, idolatrous, rebellious people. Here's another way that's perhaps going on in a, a, a setting, a context, that's giving us some insights into, into sin and the sin that Jesus is saving his people from. A marriage is the bringing together of two families. Imagine we were at a traditional church like St. Luke's, right? And the bride's family is sitting here and the groom's family is sitting here and we've got a coming together of two families, right? It's not just Fred is marrying Mary and Fred and Mary have written their own vows about how they love each other and it's very special and isn't this beautiful and unique. Um, It's about a a long-established Um, the the couples are sitting there hearing the vows that they gave. Yes, they're the kind of words that brought our family together. Now, let's go back to the first century. You've got the exchange of dowries. You've got a daughter going and living in the father-in-law's house. Can you see this is a, a, a welding together of two families. That's what marriage is, and now sin is breaking that. The marriage is off. And as Joseph might do it nicely, it's still going to be a brokenness between two families. This will be a scandal that will live on for generations. Where there was meant to be a coming together, there's now a parting of the ways. I have one grandchild here and I have another one recently, a grandson. And I went down and visited. Hewan is his name. Huey is what his parents call him. Um, And I saw my son-in-law... And his son. 
and it's beautiful to watch the dreams and the aspirations that a young father has of the things that they will do together with their son. You know what Steve Badoof says? One third of Australian adult men don't talk to their father at all. One third of Australian adult men have polite, occasional conversations. They catch up for birthdays and for Christmas and they talk about the footy and the weather. And most of the remaining third of Australian men, sorry, I got that wrong, the middle third talk to their dad occasionally but often it ends up in a heated conversation and they part ways only to come back and rub and have friction. The remaining thirds see their dads and there's a sense of duty, a sense of habit, but not profound emotional connection. According to Steve Badoof, only 1% of Australian men have a healthy, emotionally engaged relationship with their dad. That's what sin does. It breaks relationships. The kind between a father and a son that we so naturally desire and imagine. So, what I think we're seeing is that in this passage, there is more than just sin as transgression. Yes, transgression is a sin. It's a problem. It's a barrier between us and God. Absolutely. But there are more deeper ways to appreciate what sin is and how it undermines. Sin can be like defilement. It can be like shame. It can be like brokenness. And if we had more time and went to other passages, we might come up with other metaphors for sin. Sin is self-righteousness. Think of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's his problem. He trusts himself. Sin is idolatry. Think of the rich young ruler, uh, a godly person, but who loves his money more than he loves God. Sin as falling short. Both the Pharisee and the rich young ruler I imagine their godliness exceeds yours and mine. But yet somehow they fall short of what God requires of them. But what we're also seeing is that not only is sin deeper and more complex, but what Jesus brings, the saving that he offers, is more rich and it's more beautiful than just, I've had the problem of my debt cancelled. So, yes, we transgress, but now we have been declared as righteous. We were once defiled, but now we've been made clean. Think about that and the unfaithful partner, that somehow you could undo that and become clean again. Jesus does that for us. We were shamed and outside of family and now we are sons 
And in Jewish culture, sons, more so than daughters, are embedded into the family and they have rights and they have an inheritance and they have a place. And what the New Testament says, what, what the gospel says is that whether you're male or female, you have the status of a son on the other side of being forgiven by Jesus. And if you're conscious of the brokenness of sin and the way it undermines and destroys your relationships, Jesus comes and restores and creates a new family. Well, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's kind of all a little bit mind-blowing, but it's also a little bit ethereal. It's a little bit up in the cloud. What, what the heck do I do with that? Well, I've been reading a book, um, and some of what I'm saying comes from that book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. It's written by Sam Chan. Um, it's kind of the, the longer, more complex version of his other book, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. This is the book I'd like you guys to read next year when we think about being advocates. So I'm doing some prep. Um, and he has this uh, wonderful little chapter. In fact, it's all good chapters so far. Um, but he's talking about the consequences of when you see the gospel this way or this way or this way, right? And the way that we tend to see it as Western Protestants is it's a legal problem and a legal solution. Right? And Sam says this about the strengths. He, he names those up. God's sovereign, God's ruler, um, you know, uh, we're forgiven. Um, but there are weaknesses to that particular approach. Listen to these. It is weak on the warm relational aspects of the Christian life. There's no joy in the Christian life, only submission. What I actually do, once I've been forgiven, is kind of unclear. Uh, sacred work becomes more important than secular work. Um, the Christian is framed as an individual. Um, although it's strong on salvation history categories, it's weak on providence. It struggles to explain guidance prayer, healing, miracles. Does that kind of sound like it might be speaking to us? I'll try and make the same point a slightly different way. I think what I, this passage, Sam is trying to say to us is that Jesus coming and saving is, is a gift and we open the gift and it's like we get a babushka doll and we kind of go, well, that's it. That's the extent of the gift. I've been saved. Guilt's gone. I'm forgiven. But it turns out you can open that gift and inside that's another gift and another gift and another gift. And there's a complexity and a richness and a beauty to what Jesus saves us from and what Jesus saves us for that is more then I made a mistake and that debt has now been paid for. Perhaps the word to sum it up is shalom. And 
I feel a tension here, right? I'm kind of saying it's, it's, it's too simple to reduce to one thing and now I'm going to try and reduce it to one thing. Um, and, and some of us were using this word last week at our first century Christmas experience. But that sense of shalom, that sense of peace, but it's more than just peace with God because my transgressions have been forgiven. Jesus saving means that you have peace with others. You have peace within yourself. That sense of defilement, of lack of purity, that's been removed. You have peace with the world. And now there's a place to appreciate aesthetics and beauty and work and creativity and you have sense with your purpose what gift is it that you sense you most need what is it you think you most need saving from this christmas have you sinned Do you transgress the law? Yes, I do, you do. As I read scripture, it presumes that we all do. And we need saving from that, and thank God Jesus has. But my guess is that perhaps this Christmas, you might need to explore some of the wider and the deeper ways that Jesus has saved you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you did so love us, that you sent your son. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the gift that we needed. And perhaps this morning we're saying you're even the gift that we didn't know that we needed. You're even the gift that we failed to understand that we need. And we ask that by your spirit that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the transformation and the life and the gift that you want to bring to us again this Christmas. May we be your people who live glorious lives that honour you. In Jesus' name, amen.